Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire. And my guest today is Lucia Agnello, one of the three co-creators of the HBO Max series Hacks. Uh, Lucia directed six of the ten episodes, including the first three of the series, uh, which I believe is one of the most purposeful and effective uses of the camera brought to the half-hour comedy since Hiro Mirai's work on Atlanta. And that's why halfway through our conversation, Lucia and I will be joined by series cinematographer Adam Bricker, so we can dig even deeper into that. And this season of the Toolkit is sponsored by HBO Max. In Treatment, the HBO Emmy-winning original series returns for its fourth season, 10 years after the season three finale, with the amazing Emmy winner Uzo Aduba as the observant, empathetic Dr. Brooke Taylor, the therapist at the center of the season. The reimagining of the series is set in present-day Los Angeles and brings a diverse trio of patients in session with Brooke to help navigate a variety of modern concerns. Issues such as the global pandemic and recent major social and cultural shifts are the backdrop to the work Brooke will undertake, all while she deals with complications in her own personal life. It is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding drama series and all other categories, and all episodes are now streaming on HBO Max. I read some previous interviews, and it seems as if part of the perspective here is taking this moment and the kind of reckoning in the way that we're all looking at the way that women in this industry are treated. It's kind of through that lens of looking backwards at a generation that came before, which not only do we not appreciate necessarily the path they blazed, but sometimes we don't appreciate the work. (laughs) Absolutely. And the truth is, is so many of those people are still around and are still cranking out incredible material, yet it just kind of feels like as a society, we're less focused on, especially the comedy of of an older generation. And it's like, well, these are the people who not only blaze the path for us, but are still saying stuff, still have things to say. And, you know, of course, Deborah Vance, I think we're, we're at a point in her career where she she maybe hasn't evolved and hasn't necessarily um you know updated her material and so she's a bit stuck and that's why we have our Ava character to kind of come into her life and try to unstick her and try to get her to evolve a little more which you know hopefully she she continues to do in the series but but in real life like you're saying I mean there's still you know women who are churning out great hours that are like hey why can't I get a special I I've been doing this I've been perfecting this and I'm I'm ready to do my next special but you know the industry at large and I understand to an extent is still always looking for what's the young not hot new thing the next the next one and it's like well these people now have a lot more to say because they've lived so much more life so why don't why don't we give them a shot (laughs) it seems as if um I, I know that you and Jen have come up in the comedy world. So you have, I imagine you have the perspective of, well, your own perspective of what, what's happening right now. I'm wondering, looking backwards, what, what was it for the three of you? Was it, was it consultants? Was it history? Was it a lot of reading? Um, mm-hmm. Cause to a certain degree, I, it, this is me interpreting the show is kind of looking at it through a lens of Hannah, a younger generation looking, mm-hmm. learning. And I, I, I kind of maybe assume that maybe that was the perspective and also the, the three creators, right? Yeah. Yeah, Paul and Jen and I all, all, I think, have a love of, you know, these kind of female comedians. And yes, there was a lot of reading. There was a lot of watching, you know, different kinds of documentaries. Um, but we were also, you know, it was also important to us that this wasn't necessarily one one specific woman's life. I mean, we were drawing on, you know, Deborah starts by having a... Uh, stage show with her then husband uh so there was a little bit of a Nichols and may kind of thing there and then having kind of a public divorce a little bit lucy and ricky and then um there's definitely some 
Phyllis Diller, who, you know, would always make herself the joke and Joan Rivers and, um, you know, like Rita Rudner, who has this longstanding, you know, Vegas show. I mean, it, yes, there was an education, but also we didn't want to get be so hyper educated that it felt like we were actually taking parts of people's lives. So, um, you know, it was a little bit of a, a, a balance there. But yeah, we all, all three of us, I think, had a natural inclination for saying like, why don't we do something I think that honors these women, uh, all the women, and even including the women who, you know, maybe didn't have the careers they should have had. And so whose names we don't know because they were kind of maybe not encouraged in the same way their male counterparts are. Or like we discussed in episode eight, the women who like didn't want to deal with the bullshit you had to deal with at stand-up clubs at, at that time. And so kind of maybe just were like, forget it. I don't even want to bother dealing with this obviously, you know, uh, misogynistic boys club. And so hopefully that there's, you know, whether it's in comedy or women in the arts in general, you know, women can look at this and say, yeah, this is kind of, whether it's exactly my story or not, I can sense that this is something that like, you know, is, is, is hopefully speaking truth to power in some way for like, this is really what it's been like for women in the arts. And yeah, Ava's point of view is a little bit like, let's talk about it. It's interesting because I have you, you mentioned episode eight, the the one point six was it one point six nine million. Um, yes, and it's interesting because um, I have to imagine getting um, Deborah to the point that she does that is a journey. Like you can't, right? It's like you couldn't do that early, right? It's that oh, that yeah, that, yeah. that 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 idea that that someone who has lived their life this way and the arc of where she goes with Hannah, I have to imagine that was a discussion of like. Yeah, you would love to see someone like someone like Deborah do that, but it's got to be earned, right? And I have to Absolutely. imagine that was working back. Did you almost work backwards from that moment to a certain degree? I mean, I think every episode we wanted to incrementally get them closer and closer so that um, you felt like that was earned by the time you get to eight. Mm -hmm. um, I would say for, for every episode, there was like a moment where like, does this feel earned? Does this feel earned? Of course, including especially that that episode, because that's the first time you really start to see a real crack in, in Deborah in terms of changing what she intended to do. I mean, even the idea that she was going to go and start to work out this new hour is a big deal. But... But the fact that she bailed on that to actually really say her truth, which is, you know, God, you know, every time you see a guy like this, you know, there's always a Drew who talks about your tits when you come up, come up on stage, death taxes and this fucking guy, you know, like a, a moment like that isn't something that Deborah's ever done on stage. She's never bailed on her material. She's never called someone out. She's, it's just not her way. She's, She's poised, she knows what she's going to go do, and she executes the thing she knows will work. And so for us, yeah, to get her to a place where she was ready, she's angry. She's actually gotten a little bit angry. And I think that that's maybe one of the things that Ava has encouraged her is to be like, you should be angry about this. And she's always kept it so close to the vest. She hasn't ever really um, dealt with her trauma in any way, especially the stuff that happened with her ex-husband and her sister. She's really kept it close to the vest. And, and, and this is, I think, the first time you see Ava saying, I think, People want to hear this and you should be angry. And you actually see her internalize that enough to say, you know what? I am angry and I'm going to turn it on this guy. Poor Adam Ray. <laughs> An incredibly funny guy. And actually the sweetest guy. It was like always having to, Paul, um, 
Debbie Downs, who directed it, my partner, um, kept having to kind of push him to be more of a jerk and more of a dick because he actually is such a sweet guy. It was, it was very funny, very funny. Guy. It would have been the, it would have been the alternate route to have cast uh, one of those real dickheads, right? <laughs> I know, I know, and absolutely no direction necessary. No, we went for a guy who actually had to put on a full character. <laughs> I love uh, him. It strikes me that one of the brilliant things about the show and one of the things that might have been uh, one of the bigger challenges in writing it was not only getting the comedy right when they're on stage, it's got to feel like stand up. It's got to feel like mm-hmm. Deborah's got to feel like she could have been a Joan Rivers, um, Elaine May, but also that sense that the audience without it, without it being hammered over our heads, understands where these jokes are coming from. Mm-hmm. And that sounds nice. That sounds like a nice thing to say, mm-hmm. but that's a lot harder to execute where it's not necessarily like, oh, this is that piece of her backstory. But it, yeah. it, it, you naturally feel that way. And I, I don't know if that was something that was early on a goal of of, of the writer's room, but it, congratulations, you guys pulled it off. But it, it, that's a tricky balance, right? Yeah, because we, especially because Deborah is interestingly, in some ways at the top of her game, and also not. And so to make jokes that were, you understand would work for the crowd and that would kill, but also you were like, these are a little dated, these are a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, she's been doing them for a long time, but you also need to, the audience at home to be like, it's still funny enough that I think it's a decent joke, even if I know it's a little bit tired. It's a very tiny little window there. Um, Because if we made all of her jokes super edgy, super fresh, super LOL screaming, then you're a little like, well, does this, does she really need Ava in her life? I think she's got it covered. (laughs) But also they can't be so bad that you're like, oh God, this is, that's supposed to be funny. It's like, no, it is supposed to be funny for a certain crowd, but we can see it needs evolution. It's, it was a very tough thing to, to, to needle. And I think somebody like Ava, you know, she comes from more of this almost anti-comedy, alt-comedy, the area, it's a funny area, even if it hasn't been workshopped to death and isn't the sharpest, you know, no, she doesn't really believe in traditional punchlines or traditional joke structure. Um, and so some people could, you know, I think say, well, that's not, that's not a funny person, but she is funny just in a very, uh, I don't know, stoner cerebral kind of a way to me anyways. I think she's got a, I don't really think of her as a stoner, but um, a little bit. Um, but she, you know, I think she comes up in the age of Twitter jokes. And I think sometimes that there's like, there's almost like a pattern of like what is funny on Twitter or something that is like, oh, of this moment, you can almost look to a certain kind of joke structure and kind of almost date it exactly, mm-hmm. you know? And I think <laughs> she kind of comes from that that world a little bit more. And, you know, she needs to maybe work, you know, I think our point about her is she needs to definitely work, learn some work ethic. And that's something Deborah can definitely bring into her life. And, you know, I love them both. I don't know. I'm just kind of going on and on. <laughs> well, I, I'm curious. I mean, it's been talked about and and deservedly so. I mean, Gene Smart was a was a is a brilliant choice and um and yeah. for for reasons that are should be obvious to anybody that has even just seen one episode of the show. I'm curious though, in that sense that in retrospect she's an obvious choice. You know, it's always a discussion with these things. Same thing with, mm-hmm. you know, music films. Do you go with the actor or do you go with the musician? Do you go with the stage? Do you go with someone? Totally. And obviously, obviously Gene has, has comedy background, but not, not stand-up background. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering, considering 
you're building this legend. Totally. Was Do that, you appropriate was, some of their actual stand-up fame as part of the story? Or, but also just to stay. I mean, you, I mean, you know this from yeah. the, that takes years to get that kind of presence and timing. Totally. And it's like, do you, do you take someone like that that can handle the dramatic part, or do you assume that someone like Gene Smart can get there? Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. You do. You do say, do you want to go for somebody who's obviously been earning that on stage for you know however many years, and kind of just use that and hope that they can handle the dramatic stuff. Um, but, you know, it's because, you know, the show does, I think, have equal weight in terms of the comedy and the drama. To us, she was the best fit because she could do both, you know? And yes, having, she's a, a brilliant comedic actress. She has multiple Emmys for it. You've seen mm -hmm. her in Frasier and the Brady Bunch movie. She's the, was, is easily one of the funniest performances, I think, of, of all time to me. Um, but... But yeah, she's not a stand-up, and that's something that is easier said than done to, to believably do on stage. But but when you look at that list of people who can be that funny and can be that dramatic and really have been doing both for such a long time, that list is very short, and especially in the age range that we were looking for, it's incredibly short. And to us, it really is, I mean, like you're saying, in retrospect, it's a great casting, but even when we were coming to that decision it was it felt right to everybody mm -hmm. um so it wasn't a huge debate really do you do any does she do anything do you does your collaboration with her i'm thinking in particular before the pilot i'm sure once you get mm -hmm. going it's like to 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 test that out i mean obviously someone like gene smart does not necessarily need uh, huge amounts of well, I mean, I'm sure she does prep. She's a hard worker. But what I'm saying is, 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 that, yeah. is, is the prep different for something like that to get not only that, that she can do these jokes, but that you're almost like learning to to write towards mm -hmm. what her stage persona is going to be. And once you see it. Well, it's interesting because we didn't have a pilot. We went straight to series. Mm -hmm. So we didn't really get an opportunity to see her do it and then go and like change too, too much, but mm -hmm. luckily we didn't need to. Um, I actually, I mean, in general, I, I, of course I love it straight to series order, but um, I do like the process of directing pilots because you do learn so much about how to, you know, what somebody's strength is or somebody's weakness or what you might need to change or, or, or whatever. And we didn't really have that process, but what we did have is- Hopefully, hopefully this recording won't be used in negotiations for your next series. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I know. <laughs> I, I, I know, I know. Well, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's, I, there's benefits to both. I, I mean, know, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, but I do, I, I do, there's something to, in the, the true artist in me does think that mm. the, the pilot process does end up helping make for a better uh, mm. end product. But what we did have on this show is we were editing while we were shooting. So because of that, we were able to go and kind of change some things that maybe weren't working perfectly with us. Some reshoots as we were already shooting, we were still in production. Mm -hmm. And because we block shot almost, I mean, we didn't, we didn't intend to block shoot the whole series, but because of COVID and some, you know, things that happened here or there, we did, it, things kept getting shuffled and shuffled and shuffled. So in the end, we kind of, it, it ended up almost being like a one huge block, um, mm -hmm. which was helpful. I mean, which was okay because I, you know, directed six of them and, and Paul directed two of them. And so he was always there and I was always there. And then Desiree Akavan, who came in for two episodes, was able to mostly do all the stuff in, in, a, in a small window. But um, 
that wasn't exactly your question. But my point is, is because Deborah, I mean, because Jean was able to just nail the comedy stand-up stuff, luckily we never really had to rewrite for that. I mean, we mm. did write the season knowing she was attached. So knowing her just as a actor and also having done, you know, some table read stuff with her, we did get a sense of, of how she would be doing the stand-up. And it, it wasn't actually something we needed to adapt to too much, luckily. You know, I was looking through uh, your credits and you've directed a bunch of other half hours. I'm curious about what directing the first three of this, of this, and and Mm -hmm. not only the directing of those, but what was the kind of like the discussion about what you wanted from this show? Because it is Mm -hmm. distinct from other half an hours. And I'm wondering what you took from your experience on other shows and brought here and, and, and kind of that language that you were going for with Hacks. Yeah, I mean, I always try to like define a new visual language based on what the I think the show requires. Like, you know, something like Broad City, I went into that being like, all right, this is just it needs to feel hyper authentic, needs to be like like n- not like it was doc or anything, but it needed to really feel like this was just their lives. And so that kind of to me had more of like a cinema verite vibe to it, but something like Babysitters Club, which I did for Netflix, um two years ago now, wow, Um, you know, had more of a slightly heightened, almost storybook feeling. I wanted to have like pop and fun and colors because it's kind of for like tweens and kids. And so um, everything from, you know, the camera and how it moves to the color palettes, to the costumes and, and everything else, I really try to like redefine it based on what I think the show needs. And so in a way, I kind of hope that I think if I'm doing my job as best as possible, you don't actually notice that I'm directing all these different mm-hmm. things because it's completely different based on on what I need. Same with, with Rough Night. It was like very much like a, a darker um, tone that I was going for. And so for Hacks, I mean, we, Adam and I, you know, really talked a lot about wanting to make sure it felt big and beautiful and never too glossy, but also always pretty. Um, and I think we, you know, made sure that the camera felt, especially in the pilot, uh, there is no line to have shots that mirrored what we wanted the audience to feel, especially for Deborah, which is when she's working and she's on her grind, the camera's moving, it's fun, it's exciting. But when she gets home, she's alone and she's alone in a big, large space. And it kind of mimics how we want, um, her inner life to feel, which is she is by herself and she's put all of these objects and things there to kind of keep her company. Uh, while somebody like Ava is not really connecting with anybody. She can't really connect with her manager. She tra- tracks down a, a, an acquaintance and begs for a job and kind of can't really make a connection there and hooks up with a postmate who she's running around opening loud boxes with. Um, you know, she's just kind of not connecting with anybody. And so I, I, we saved, for example, a lot of the close-ups in the pilot just in general for that very final scene when the two of them are having their showdown. And that was really the first time we, we see very dirty shots with somebody's shoulders and heads in the other person's frame because this is the first time either of them are really connecting with somebody else in the pilot. So, so everything from kind of the composition to the camera movement itself, especially that, you know, when Deborah tracks down Ava in the extremely long driveway and they have their tete-a-tete there, you know, every choice is purposeful in terms of, okay, these are two women that actually do have a lot in common. And we tried to mimic that and tried to say that with just shots and composition and, you know, lighting and, and so much. Adam, do you agree? 
<laughs> I, 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 I want to bring I want to bring your cinematographer Adam uh, Bricker into the conversation. Um, and, and be, uh, before you agree or disagree, Adam, <laughs> it seems like I really uh, hope you disagree. I think it'd be so much more fun if you fully disagree with me and everything. <laughs> well, first off, do you do you agree or disagree? <laughs> no, I thought that that was all very well said, Lucia. I completely agree. <laughs> it, it it um one thing about this is that there's that element of their relationship. And there's also this element of, of intimacy. In a weird way, the show is about intimacy, and you start that starts becoming very clear in their (laughs) discomfort as they do become closer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm wondering, as you you were talking about the different ways you shot that, I'm wondering if that was a conversation globally about the whole series and and, Mm -hmm. and with Adam as well of 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 how we were going to handle their relationship and a sense of 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 how they we were going to see them to ex- together and see their relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think there's other I mean, some other things that I think we consciously did is do a lot of 50-50 profile shots so you really see them facing off to each other and framing them in that way. And so we did that, for example, in the pilot, both when they're sitting down on the couch and again, when they're in the hallway, I think we are, we're saying with that framing, like these are mirror images of one of of each other, even though they don't realize it yet. And so shots like that, I think we tried to kind of continue to do throughout the series, whether it was in the first three or, I mean, I did the first three, I did six and then nine and 10. And so there's, there is a lot of bookending in general, both in terms of the narrative and I think in the compositions as, as we go forward, we end the scene. I don't know if there's, if people have already seen the finale, but we end um, the last shot of them in Ava's childhood bedroom, also in a 50, 50, but now they're holding hands. So I think that that by mimicking some of those shots and yet showing them now they're sitting closer together, they're holding hands. I mean, we really are trying to say, I think visually and compositionally, here's where they started and here's where they ended. And, and I'm very conscious for, for me and I think for, for us. Um, but it was, it was always important, I think, to, to say, say a lot with, with our composition and blocking and, and cinematography. Okay, now, Adam, even, you have to talk. <laughs> yeah, no, and then I think I think we didn't explicitly talk about that, but I think even in the sim- simplest of, of scenes, you know, Lucia would be very considered about uh, and over the shoulder and how much of the shoulder we were feeling and really trying to, in someone's close-up, um, you know, make sure you felt the presence of the other character and draw the connection between the two. And then, you know, as, as Lucia knows, I can get, you know, very mathematical about things. So I would, would, would keep track of... Um, our, our lenses and our, our distances to make sure that when we were going in tighter than normal on a close-up, it was, it was with intention that we were, we were building that, that connection between the two of them. And we're going to take a brief pause for a message from our presenting sponsor. The HBO original special Between the World and Me is an adaptation of Tanashi Coates' 2015 book of the same name. The book was written as a letter to the author's teenage son and recounts his experiences growing up in Baltimore's inner city and growing fear of daily violence against the black community. The special explores the bold notion that American society structurally supports white supremacy. It includes appearances by Mahershala Ali, Angela Bassett, Jarell Jerome, Joe Morton, Felicia Rashad, MJ Rodriguez, Yara Shahidi, Black Thought, Courtney B. Vance, Oprah Winfrey, and many more. It's four-year Emmy consideration for Outstanding Variety Special and all other categories, and is streaming on HBO Max, and now back to my hacks conversation with Lucia Agnello and cinematographer Adam Bricker. 
It also feels like, to a certain degree, although it's a very funny show, um, and I know it's it's billed as a comedy, it seems as if a lot of um, the cinematography and directing is is welcoming a more dramatic approach and and very comfortable not being a comedy, even if they are being funny for for a while. I I don't I know we don't necessarily want to think about things as comedy and drama in a binary way, but it, that seems to be a conscious choice compared to a lot of other half an hours. No. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's something that we talked about early on in, in our early discussions about the show is that we, we, both, we both agreed that just because something is labeled as a, as a comedy and is in that genre doesn't mean that it has to look a, a specific way. Um, and so many of our, our references um, early on were just, were just straight dramas. They, had, they, they weren't comedic in, in any sense. So I think that, um, you know, that that's totally true. It, it's, it, we wanted this, the, the, the visuals to be uh, – to represent – help tell the story and um, – you know, then, then funny things occur. And, and, you know, I think one reason that sometimes comedies feel like comedies is understandably because sometimes they're cross shots. So, you know, two cameras looking at this, looking in opposite directions in the same scene so that you get the funniest performances. And sometimes we would do that. And sometimes we wouldn't do that. And we always had, Adam and I always had lengthy discussions about which scenes it felt it was worth, um, cross shooting for the comedy and which ones maybe not as much. And that kind of depended oftentimes on the performer, oftentimes on our motivation for light and whether or not we could handle that. And, you know, it was a, it was a conversation because we always want the show to be very, very funny, but we also don't want it to, um, always be based fully on just like, well, what's the absolute funniest stake? I mean, yes, we do want to have that option, but we also need it to look a certain way and have that kind of through line of like, this is what the show looks like. We can't have some of it just be cross shot and kind of look eh, and then some of it look beautiful. So we always had to kind of consider whether it was worth it, whether it was not worth it to cross shoot any scenes. And, and sometimes we wouldn't sometimes, I mean, most of the time we didn't, but sometimes we did. And I think oh, it was, yeah, and that was a know, great I and mean, it was a collaboration too. It was like a team Absolutely. effort on those those, those cross shooting scenes. Like how how can we get these these traditional two cameras over each each character's shoulder um, scenes to, to look like the rest of our the rest of our, our mm -hmm. TV show? Um, and that that involved, you know, a lot of discussions about blocking and where mm -hmm. people were in relation to pre existing light and that stuff was all really fun. That was a and fun it was challenge. Also, yeah, it was a challenge. And sometimes it would even involve bringing John Carlos, a production designer, in to say, Hey, we're gonna be building the stage. Can we put a window here? Can we put a window here? Is this a door? Can we pretend it's a window? Mm -hmm. Can we you know, so the the it, became even though it was like sometimes we're just doing jokes it really became it would go we'd have to take a step back a step back a step back and it really became very technical in terms of of how we would pull things off to make it all feel cohesive and yet also can motive the light can hold uh, a cross coverage scene and, and adam you know is is really a, a genius at, at making sure that people still look beautiful but real and you know i'm, I'm really proud of, of how the show looks especially uh, as what you say is built as a comedy, and it is. <laughs> well, you know, having spent so much time in, uh, of your career on Broad City, um, mm -hmm. there, there is a model. I don't know what your budget is, but it's a lot more than, <laughs> than Broad City per episode. And it feels like this is not only, I mean, obviously you have things like Deborah's House and you have some builds here. Um, mm -hmm. But it feels like from both a cinematography standpoint, production design standpoint, but even just the look of the show, that became something you're talking about being able to collaborate with your production designer and, and builds 
on ways that that seems to be a huge part of this show is that ability to think in terms of space and light instead of like I imagine just as an easy example, Broad City, you're often just in someone's apartment or like a, a, a location, yeah. right? Totally. And I think, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, we oftentimes, we did, Abby and Alana's apartments were builds and a lot mm-hmm. of, there was a lot, of, a fair amount of build on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a, a scaling up in a lot of ways, but it makes sense for the story, you know? So it's a little bit like, like I kind of am, I guess, going back to my original answer, which is like, if it makes sense for the story or it's almost like I'd be happy to go back to kind of shooting Mm -hmm. renegade style people down the street on the next project, if that makes more sense for how it should feel and should look. It's, you know, I think it's an exciting thing to get to have a little bit more control over everything, especially because the backdrop for both of these women um, says so much about them. And I think that's maybe the thing that you're referring to and, and speaking to, which is like being able to be so detailed with every single choice of like having a soda dispenser in her dining room or I mean, in her kitchen or having, you know, like a bra bucket for Ava in the hotel room. And that's where she stores her bras because hotels don't have storage because they're only there for, you know, 24, 48 hours. Like those details are things that were very important to us because it says a lot about our backdrop, our setting and, and therefore our characters. And it was, I mean, a really fun thing to get to develop over the course of writing it and shooting it and pre-production and you know there's like millions of hours of conversation <laughs> went into into all those choices which is a it was really fun I mean I think Adam also got to do things maybe he didn't doesn't ordinarily get to do too yeah I mean there aren't many uh you know half hour comedy scripts that you get that open with um a four page one uh, <laughs> through multiple locations you know it's a it's a wonderful it's a treat <laughs> Why, why, why did you open the series that way, behind her and kind of going through it that way? Yeah, that was in the script for from the very beginning. And I think for us, it was about building the myth. And by not starting on her face, you get to say, here she is by saying, here's her jokes. And then here she is walking backstage. She's constantly saying, let's use these shoes for this night. Let's do this on this night. She's still working. And then she says... Um, how how they do Bill, she knows the people she works with by name, and she knows their wives' names, and she knows the women who are the uh, dancers in the next show. And it's just, it's building up her persona. So by the time you actually see her, her face, you already know her. And I think that that was for us a way to quickly define her as bigger than life. And it was a shot that was not easy. <laughs> and we had a little bit of, uh, of, uh, you know, stitching that was not all in one location. And, uh, but it, I think, you know, for us, it was important to, to say also to the audience, this show is, isn't just a straight comedy. This show I think has intentions to, to say things beyond just the jokes. It, it, it intends to visually tell you things that, um, you can't just, yeah, say in a punchline, I guess. Um, I'm wondering, Adam. You know, it's a wonderful piece of production design, um, the uh, Deborah's house. But it, it seems as if it's also a huge part of the way that you want. You, so much happens in that house, and so much of the visual storytelling is in that house. And it feels like that allowed a lot of framing opportunities and and an approach to framing in that sense that it is a build. It is a big space. Um, and an interesting piece of storytelling to, to, to work in, in that space. No. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. John Carlos just did such a, a wonderful, a wonderful job creating creating those spaces, and they. He just it was it was a, such a pleasure to to collaborate with him. He um, he really thinks about about composition and does these wonderful three D models where in, in pre production we were able to sort of float around and find frames or you know he you know I'd make a suggestion about our aspect ratio when he would move two windows in just a little bit to fit. Um, he's just it, it was just it was it was a pleasure. It made the job it made the job very easy. Um, and then you know he he I explained you know how how Lucci and I were thinking about lighting the show and that it was going to be cinematic but but naturally driven so you know it's a it's a lot of very large windows and and wonderful shears and a lot of fun geeky things where we're testing different shears and that kind of a thing and yeah no it was a, those spaces were a pleasure and going back to that idea of the relationship between the two of them you can really feel space in there. You could really feel something about what's going on with Deborah's character, but it also, some of the more intimate moments happen there. And so, right. So it feels like there's, from a framing standpoint, you could do so much in terms of their relationship in that space, right? In the different rooms. Absolutely. And that's, I think that's what's fun about making a, you know, 10 episodes of a television show that predominantly, predominantly take place in, in one, one hero location is that you sort of, you learn, you learn about the location and you find, you live in it and you live in it for several months and you find different angles so and, and, and different areas to set scenes that you haven't been before. So when script nine comes along, you know, you're like, oh, well, this will be wonderful in this little corner with the two of them. That, that type of thing just happens organically. Was that hard from a story standpoint um, to figure out how much of Deborah's backstory to dole out and at what point? Because you, you kind of need... Yeah. Because right, because it feels like one of these things where it's like you're withholding to it. We need to. It can't be a. It's got to be a slow reveal in the same way it's a slow reveal to Hannah. But at the same time, you want to get to your show. It, I have to. It, you, once again, the result you found a nice balance. But I have to imagine that was not that had yeah. a, that was that was a struggle, right? It and really even, was. Even just visually with that house, because her story's in that house too. Yeah, and and I think that that's a big reason why we introduced the storyline of. Ava digitizing. Um, and also we needed to kind of connect that to the actual story of needing to work hard. And so then by the time you see in episode three, the flashbacks of her old standup, and then you also see the late night, you know, that's a big moment for us to show backstory in a way that we felt was active. Um, Cause it's very hard sometimes to be like, if you don't do flashbacks to make backstory feel active. And we, you know, talking, we oftentimes talked about, well, isn't it just easier to just do flashbacks, but it just doesn't make as much sense, especially if we're seeing it through Ava's point of view. If, if we are partly the audience, is Ava learning along with the audience the backstory, then you need to kind of find creative ways to do it. And I think that the um, older footage is, is to me one of the more successful ways that we get to explore the, the backstory through Ava's point of view. And that was a very complicated um, thing, the older footage, we basically had Jean record the audio and, and kind of move around how she would normally do it. And then we would have an actress, Olivia Borham Wing, mimic, she would learn the dialogue perfectly. I mean, perfectly lip dubbed. And then we would then have our VFX supervisor, David Neednoggle, would use old footage of Jean and then kind of comp that onto Olivia's face and then do a lot of, you know, degrading and all those specific things I don't know um, to make it to make it look like perfectly this year in terms of the color grade and and it was you know I think a very successful uh, job by many people and and 
John Carlos did an amazing job with the setting for the late night pilot and what that looked like. And it was an incredible team effort to, to pull that off. And I think we, we shot that in a different aspect ratio and a different camera as well. Correct, Adam? Yeah, different different aspect ratio and some different different lensing. We played That's a lot right. with different types of lensing on the show. But it was fun. We got to, like, um, get all of the old lights from Paramount um, out and all the old – we were using LEDs predominantly on the show, but used a bunch of old tungsten heads and lit, lit, a, lit a talk show. It was fun. Um, one thing I like about this story is it's very much a, an industry story, but – we, we get to leave Los Angeles and I feel like that was a conscious, I want to talk about Vegas and how Vegas influences th- this first season, but I, that, that was a conscious choice. I imagine of like, we're going to tell an industry story, but unlike a lot of movies and television shows you've seen, we're, we're, we're going to, you know, with Paul's character, we're always have a touchstone in, in LA yes. but that we're, we're going to be out. This isn't simply going to be about this industry. We can focus a little bit more about the, these women in this time and space. Right. Yes, exactly. And, and, we talked a lot about wanting to make sure, because it's essentially a story about two women who are kind of kicked out of, of the traditional Hollywood structure, and so therefore they find themselves in the desert together. Um, and yeah, in terms of visually, like it was, I think, a, exciting for us to get to play with the idea of them being in Vegas. We did shoot in, in Vegas, and for Adam and I, we would often reference kind of older Vegas and you know older bulbs and, and colors and things that felt like it was... Um, the Vegas that hadn't completely become all LED screens and, you know, purples and pinks, even though we invited that as well. But there was something about it where we wanted to feel like the kind of Vegas that you experience a little bit more if you live there versus if you just visit there. Yeah. Yeah. And then like a vintage, a vintage quality to it, like kind of echoing on the themes that like uh, Deborah's heyday was is, is behind her. She's stuck in the past a little bit. And, and that extends to even the lenses in general on the sorry I interrupt you. No, 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 yeah, no, no, totally. no, no, please go, please go. Because I was but about the, to ask what, how did that manifest itself? An idea of a, once again, those, I wondered, that sounds right to me. I was wondering how you yes. did that or what the choices were. And I think you were about to talk about that. Yeah. Well, we, we had some custom Panavision lenses that made sure that it kind of, um, mirrored that 70s kind of 70 late 70s kind of le- glass and that was really a fun fun process Adam and, and Charlie uh, one of our operators and I kind of spent an afternoon toying around it was really fun yeah we work we were working actually with Guy McVicker at, at Panavision and he does these these great custom optics and we were able actually to send him some some references of, of some movies in one of our early lookbooks we, we sent him i think some clips from judy and some mm-hmm. clips from behind the candelabra which are two 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 big influences for us on the look and guy was able to um tweak modern um primo 70 lenses to sort of match the match the flavor so um that's a wonderful process because you get to look at it and then uh, kind of give notes and talk about how you feel about it and then he kind of tweaks the recipe and you end up with something completely unique to to the project and then i guess like on an intellectual storytelling level it's fun to be mixing like an older glass with a newer digital thing it's sort of the deborah ava ava dichotomy there and you, you see walk- you know even on that very so sorry no no you go, see go, go, even go. A- you see even on the very first shot you can catch a little bit of like uh, like flare to it that has like a little bit of something that feels almost like a film grain on it and that's stuff we loved keeping in because it just made it feel a little bit more like raw and real and i think adam and i always kind of like raised our eyebrows and we saw that happening on set naturally in camera and like loved leaning into it 
It's funny in that sense that the style of the show is a little bit more Deborah than Hannah. No, it's like in a yeah. it, 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 in a sense that it's it it's about her. I don't know reclamation or something like that. There's the the style feels very much like something that might have might have a really good movie from her era to a degree. No, well, I Ava's love that. Ava's coming into she's coming into Deborah's world, right? She's coming to live to live with her. So she's kind of in those in those large spaces and invading that. And we also tried to lean into that in the music as well, to have it feel like a little bit funky, a little bit vintage, but also hip in its own kind of fun way. And and so there was, it was really everything from like I'm saying, like the lenses to um, the way the camera moves to, yeah, the music and obviously dialogue. Like we really tried to make it feel like your favorite movie you never saw. And that said, Ava definitely has like a visual impact on on the mm-hmm. movie. Like I think in the beginning when we're with Deborah, things are they're on steady cam and it's these big static wide frames. And then once Ava enters, there's a lot more handheld and she really mm-hmm. kind of brings this modern vibe to the to the visuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one episode I wanted to talk to you about, Adam. I we talked to I mean just because you didn't direct it didn't mean you weren't involved. But uh, the what is it? Falling. Uh, the the one mm-hmm. that, that's where Five. we're really we're really out in Vegas. Yes. And it's, Paul directed that one. Yeah. It's it, but it's because um, right. I mean, some of this is about like approximating what the Vegas is that you want with sets and things like that. But and this one, it feels like you were. This is like a, a journey through a night of of Vegas. I, it was. It, I have to imagine the filming of that was a, was a little bit different, right? Yeah. Paul talked about it sort of like a almost like a fairy tale. Um, and the, you know, we, we, we were really um, loose with the camera when this is a, this is an episode where, where Ava sort of has like a, a how would you describe it, Lucia? Like a, a, one, wild, one, a wild night out with a manic pixie dream boy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. So, you know, I think, you know, Vegas, Vegas brings a lot to the table in terms of like twinkly, blinky lights, but we wanted our camera to sort of capture that energy. So it's, you know, it's, it's flowing. It's, there's a lot of steady cam. There's a lot of, there's a lot of movement. It feels spontaneous and like a little dangerous and it's a departure from what we were doing traditionally on the show. So there's, there's a, there's a nice break there. Um, yeah. And I think it creates a, it creates a, creates a good vibe. Yeah, I, until I'm it not, doesn't. <laughs> yeah, well, that end was. I mean, was it hard to figure out how to film that end and the and the and the 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 windows being blown out, but then also kind of being at the bottom there with her with the security guard. I mean, it's beautiful, but I that's one of those ones where I don't know if I had been read the script page, even though I'd watched the first four episodes, I would have been like, I'm not sure how they're going to film this one, but it's 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 pretty remarkable yeah, they, how he did it. I think. Uh, you know, it, and it worked out pretty logically for Paul and I, where we'd ha- we'd set up this sort of flowy, dreamlike fantasy language um, in the scenes prior, and then once the twist happens and there's this this tragic ending, everything sort of becomes static and compositional, and you revert back to what we had been doing. I'm curious when you first walk onto a set or a location at the beginning of the day. I'm sure you're blocking and rehearsing. How much room is left? in terms of, I mean, it's a very sharply written show, but are you allowing these two performers in terms of improv and, and finding things or, or is it, is it, is it a really straight to straight to page? Cause it is a very specific um, presidium that you have on this, but I'm, but at the same time, there's such a remarkable performers that seem to be bringing something so organic to it. I'm wondering what that balances um, from written word to, to performance. Yeah. I mean, it definitely depends on the scene. Um, mm-hmm. Truth be told, we we didn't. I mean, it, it's a six six day an episode show, um, which is fast and yet you know nice. But mm-hmm. 
It's it. I think it depends, and and maybe Adam can speak more to this on the director kind of. Um, for me, I tend to be very. Uh, blocking tends to be a little bit already figured out beforehand. I mean, there are definitely variations and things can change, but um, I kind of try to get shooting as quickly as possible. So there aren't even always a ton of rehearsals for me. Sometimes, sometimes there is if, if it really, uh, if I, if I feel that we might need to see what happens, but I try to keep everybody in hair and makeup and just try to get the day going because I like getting <laughs> a couple more takes um, rather than not. Um, and in terms of improvising, uh, yeah, it depends on the scene. It depends on the moment. There's certainly a lot of improvised lines in there, but also some scenes are fully 100% scripted. So it really, it really just does depend. And are, are, are your episodes pretty much written to a half hour, or are you filming? Are you filming more than and in cutting and in post? We're filming 30 page scripts, I think, pretty uh -huh. much around there, which uh -huh. ends up being around what it is. 30 minutes, mm -hmm. 29, 28, 31. I mean, Adam, I don't know. You you worked with a couple different directors on this. Is it? I mean, I was there for all of it, so I do know. But what's your point of view? <laughs> I think that uh, in terms of, like, how the day would work at the beginning of the day, I think, like, you know, I think Lucia has a really uh, strong sense of – a strong sense of blocking um, and would come with uh, – a great plan at, at the head of every scene, um, but then would would be very open to uh, to collaboration. So, and that and that's the that's the best, right? Is like you come in, work with a director that has a sense of uh, here's here's an idea. Um, so you aren't starting from scratch. It's like I think that the scene might work this way, um, and then they're willing to adapt as you sort of see it and, and come up with with other with other ideas. And um, you know, I think most of the time we stuck sort of to the blocking that you that, that you envisioned and. Um, we would maybe tweak the orientation of something for lighting mm -hmm. or or something like that um but but yeah i think like that's sort of the that, that, it was it was a great it was both a a wonderfully efficient way to work but also um creatively creatively worked for us as well i don't i don't want to um i'm not asking for spoilers but maybe i am <laughs> <laughs> we're we're talking a lot about vegas and the sense of space and deborah space and i mean I don't know how much far into the future you've thought about this show, probably a lot, but it feels like maybe one thing that comes out in that end is, is that maybe the show isn't going to necessarily be rooted in, in Vegas to a certain degree. And that mm -hmm. while the first season might've been conceived that way, it maybe future episodes might feel a little bit more like the Sacramento one. Is that, is that mm -hmm. possible? Is, is that, is that, is, are you envisioning this show not always being like, grounded in, in in that Deborah Vegas world. I think we will in we will certainly be leaving Vegas for a portion. Uh, the exact uh, ratio I, I don't know for sure. Um mm -hmm. I think it would be a shame to lose Vegas entirely and I think mm -hmm. the truth is is that Deborah doesn't travel like most road dog comedians do. <laughs> so she has a couple couple days she can easily take her jet and go home. So yeah. I can't imagine that we will not be seeing uh, her home in some way. And also a lot of our ancillary characters, Marcus and DJ are, are still Vegas based. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, Vegas will always remain the heart, uh, the beating heart of, of our show in terms of our setting and our backdrop. But I am also excited to see the our two leads out in the world because some of my favorite scenes were, you know, in Sacramento or the two of them at an antique shop or the two of them out in the world together mm -hmm. is interesting because they both still have their odd coupleness, but also sometimes they're on the same page and same team against another person. So I think it's an exciting way to potentially evolve. Um, but I, I would 
be, I think, I think the show would be making a misstep to take it out of Vegas completely. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a wonderful final episode. This is airing. Oh, after. I'm glad you liked it. This is not, it's not going to air until next week. So people, people will have seen it. And I, I have to say, I really have enjoyed the two episodes of Thursday night thing. Oh, good. Until, until, until I had to prep for this one, I, I've been, I've been watching them on Thursday night or Friday morning. It's, oh, it's, that's it's, great. It's, it's been a fun way to, to, to dole them out. I thought so. Yeah. It's, it's like not as, it, it, it's not as quick as of course dropping them all at once which might be more fun in the short term but it also gives you a little bit more than just once a week yeah i think i would have been frustrated with one a week. I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and in a weird way they also i don't know i don't know if they were designed way, but they were they, they worked well as a, a combo yeah. too like five six was just like a wonderful like yeah the window and then they the, the plastic surgery place it, was, it worked out yeah. it worked out really well they so. weren't they weren't built for that but it's cool that they didn't work out that way well, congratulations on being picked up. And Thank you. Uh, we look for, I assume it's back to work pretty soon, right? Turn around on these things is pretty quick, mm, right? No. Sooner than I want to admit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Adam, thanks for joining us. And, yeah, uh, thanks for having it was me. It's great talking to you both. Thank you so much. And thank you ahead of time for editing out so much of what I said. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, Chris is like, absolutely not doing that. You're going to sound like an idiot and I don't care. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> Uh... <sighs>